Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Ella Whelan, Assistant Editor at Spiked, and today I talk to Brendan O'Neill about the Catalonian referendum, Kevin Yule about the calls for gun controls after the shooting in Las Vegas, and Adrian Hart about whether the claims of hate crime spikes in schools is based on fact or fiction. Many of us have been watching with anger videos of the brutal police response to the Catalonian referendum over the weekend. Police officers kicked voters, confiscated ballot boxes, even pushed people down the stairs and jumped on them. The violence was quite incredible and has been condemned by many people. The Spanish government claims that the referendum was illegal and that it was proper to stop it from happening. Does that sound familiar? Now, while the police weren't abusing Brexit voters in the street, there are some similarities to be drawn between the refusal of democracy in Catalonia and our own problem with Brexit in the UK. What's happening? Is Spain's attack on democracy just the sharp end of a Europe-wide problem? To discuss this, I spoke to Spike's editor, Brendan O'Neill. First of all, Brendan, can you get us up to speed? What is going on in Spain? Nothing good is going on. It's almost as if Spain is falling apart and unravelling before our eyes. So what happened was that the leaders of Catalonia, this kind of semi-autonomous region, last weekend they carried out a independence referendum and they said that people should have the choice of whether Catalonia splits from Spain and becomes its own independent little statelet. And the Spanish government, the Madrid government, said this referendum was unacceptable, it was illegal, it was unacceptable under the constitution of Spain, which says that Spain is a complete country and cannot be broken apart. That's what the actual constitution of 1978 says. So there was a conflict and the Spanish police went to Catalonia to prevent the referendum from taking place. There were extraordinary violent scenes, the like of which we haven't seen in Europe for quite a long time, uh, in Western Europe anyway, where people were dragged out of voting booths, were beaten by the police, were smashed across the face. We saw policemen walking away with ballot boxes, which was a really graphic, ugly illustration of the state trying to prevent democracy from taking place. So it gave rise to a huge amount of conflict. And even though that violent conflict has now died down to a certain extent the tensions are still there the the unraveling dynamic is still there and now the leaders of catalonia say that uh, people voted for independence and they will declare independence sometime soon and madrid is saying that's unacceptable so we are watching a western european country unraveling in front of us and that is quite worrying i think This happened at the same time, coincidentally, that there was an anti-Brexit march in the UK. And now you've drawn a comparison between these two events in a piece that you wrote for Spiked this week. Why are they similar? What's really similar is not so much that the violence in Catalonia by the Spanish government is similar to a march against Brexit. Obviously, 
a march against Brexit that is uh, democratic and perfectly legal and perfectly correct that people should register their opposition to Brexit and so on. Uh, it was just very powerfully symbolic that these two things happened on the same day, because what both of them express in different ways, I think, is a contempt for the demos and a contempt for citizens opinions on important political issues so what's really comparable is what the spanish state did to catalan voters and what the british cultural and media and political elite have tried to do to brexit over the past 16 months or so which is to prevent it from happening to demonize it to say that people didn't really know what they wanted to say that we shouldn't listen to them because they're low information, they were ill-informed, they were ill-educated, they were um, brainwashed by things that were said on the side of a bus, they had their minds warped by demagogues like Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, and now we should call upon business leaders and unelected lords and supposedly sensible members of parliament to stop Brexit from happening or to water Brexit down. So all the stuff that the Spanish state did in relation to Catalonia, which is to say this referendum is unacceptable and we don't want to hear your voice, has already been done by our betters, as they see themselves, here in Britain in relation to Brexit. They might not have used violence, they might not have uh, dragged people by the hair into the streets and beaten them up, but they've had the exact same instinct which is how can we prevent this independence referendum because brexit was also a referendum really about sovereign national independence how can we prevent this from going through how can we stop this from happening so i thought that the image of that policeman walking away with the ballot box was actually very indicative of what's happened in britain too which is that those who apparently know better than ordinary people would love to drag away these ballot boxes and empty away their contents and pretend that that vote for Brexit never happened. So what I think both of those events speak to, both what happened in Catalonia and what's happened in Britain recently, is a new disdain among the European Union and its supporters for ordinary people's points of view. They just don't want to hear what we've got to say. And obviously Spike is a big fan of Brexit and we think Brexit is brilliant, uh, but the argument for Catalonian nationalism is different to Brexit, isn't it? Yes, I'm not a fan of Catalan nationalism at all. I don't think it's a particularly positive or dynamic or progressive political outlook. I think it's far more separatist than democratic. It's a kind of political creed that it's much more popular among, usually among kind of upper middle classes or middle classes, who often have a kind of quite strong disdain for people in the rest of Spain, uh, particularly the leaders of the Catalan independence movement often look upon Spain itself as a bit backward, a bit unenlightened. Spanish people are, you know, not particularly progressive and we should break away from them and do our own thing. Catalonia is also one of the wealthiest regions in Spain. So it's also about protecting economic privilege against the less well-off parts of Spain. So there's a lot of economic self-interest and sometimes quite ugly separatism driving the Catalan nationalist movement. So it's not positive in the way that Brexit was. Brexit was a, um, a pretty national demand, a democratic demand for the assertion of democratic national rights against an unelected oligarchy overseas, which 
has somehow in recent decades presumed the right to make laws on our behalf. So Brexit at its root was a positive expression of national democratic statehood. And Catalan nationalism in some ways is the opposite of that. And I think the other interesting thing about what's happening in Spain is it seems pretty clear to me now that the more that the European Union weakens the whole idea of state sovereignty, the more that it attacks the idea of popular sovereignty, the more that it weakens the idea of nationhood, which is what the European Union exists to do, the more we're likely to see nations unravel in this way. And all these kind of separatist, communalist, local, regional interests rise up and threaten to tear nations apart. I don't think that's coincidental in an era in which the European Union has effectively made it unacceptable to be your own democratic nation. I think that's really starting to unleash some very divisive dynamics across Europe. So for me, what's happening in Catalonia is another argument against the European Union, because the European Union is really weakening the state in the 21st century, weakening the nation rather in the 21st century and causing a lot of division and tension in the process. Well, Brendan, from Brexit to Trump and now what's happening in Catalonia, it seems that populist revolts and demands for democracy are shaking up and frightening the politically. Why is it important to defend democracy and populism today? I think it's incredibly important. I think, you know, there are huge differences between Brexit and Catalan nationalism. But the similarity between these two situations is that voters are being insulted and assaulted and undermined and treated like trash effectively. That's the commonality here. It's really striking that on the left in Britain, they're very keen to defend Catalan referendum voters. They're far less keen to defend Brexit referendum voters. And that seems very obvious to me why this is. They like Catalan nationalism because it seems quite exotic and progressive and they associate it with Barcelona and they associate it with the Spanish Civil War and the left and standing up to Franco and so on. So there's a kind of glamorous historical appeal to Catalan nationalism and they don't look too deeply into the some of the problems with it. Whereas Brexit, they find terrifying. They find Brexit terrifying because Brexit was a far clearer populist revolt against the establishment, against the existing political order, against technocracy, and for the idea that ordinary people within a nation are best placed to decide how that nation should be governed. And that's a very radical idea to assert today. So I think the the hypocrisy we're seeing where they will defend referendum voters in Spain, but they won't defend them over here, really speaks to the fact that Brexit still terrifies our political establishment and the media class and the political set and so on. It fills them with dread. And to my mind, that's one of the things that remains very positive about Brexit, that it still has this extraordinary power to terrify all the people who really do deserve to be terrified right now. That was Brendan O'Neill on the Catalonian referendum. Now for our next topic. There was more violence this weekend, this time in Las Vegas in the US, where Stephen Paddock, a 64-year-old man, shot into a crowd of concertgoers. He killed 59 people and injured hundreds. This horrific massacre was the worst mass shooting ever in US history. And while we're still reeling from the news, many have decided to call for gun control in the wake of such an event. Is this the right thing to do? Is it the best thing to do? 
Will maniacs like Paddock be stopped simply by denying the Second Amendment and stopping people having access to guns? To find out, I spoke to professor and writer Kevin Newell, who has just written a book on the topic of gun control, called From Virtuous Armed Citizen to Cramped Little Risk-Fearing Man, The Meaning of Firearms in an Insecure Era. So, Kevin, 59 people were killed and 527 injured in the Las Vegas shooting on Sunday evening, that terrible massacre. And as with all mass shootings in America, there have been calls for greater gun controls in the aftermath. Could you tell us what people have been saying? Well, I mean, I think there are two groups of people here. I think, first of all, the people on the ground, if you heard, if you caught the Today program, for instance, yesterday, are not actually calling for gun controls. The people who are actually in Las Vegas, who are involved in the tragedy, were actually not calling for gun controls and were fairly balanced on the whole issue. I think the people calling for gun controls are two groups of people. First of all, uh, people in the east of the United States who have been calling for for a long time. So uh, people in Washington, uh, particularly Democrats, have been calling for it gun control, they have continued these calls for gun control in the aftermath of this massacre. And the second group of people, which really distorts the whole discussion, is all of the press in Britain and and virtually everybody in Britain and in Europe. So there are two different groups of people. And I think there there are also celebrities. I mean, uh, there are all sorts of celebrity tweets saying gun control now. But I think the ordinary Americans are not calling so much for gun control Um, Not that I've heard. And obviously, is it true that getting rid of guns would stop people like Stephen Paddock, who was the killer in the Las Vegas shooting? That seems to be what those who are calling for greater gun controls are saying. Well, I don't agree with that perspective because I think, first of all, there were explosives found in his room. Presumably, he was going to, if he failed to be able to shoot people, to blow them up. I think if somebody's very determined to actually kill people, they can probably do it. It's worth remembering that in countries with gun controls, you still have massacres. You have in Britain, for instance, Whitehaven, which was a massacre of of 12 people and and 11 wounded in uh, using rifles. That's despite the most onerous gun controls in, in, um, I think, Europe. There are also massacres using different means that have taken the lives of more people. So for the, the one that I'm thinking of is the attack in Nice where somebody used a Renault truck to kill uh, a huge number of people, much larger. I think it's 69, as I recall. So I think anybody who's very determined can actually do so. The second point is is that these weapons, despite the fact that they're very high profile and they're used in many of these massacres, you know, these rather dramatic events that we hear about, are not massive killers in the United States. So I wonder what you would do to to with gun control. These are rifles. He had devices on them to make them fire faster. And there is a question mark about whether those will be banned, but they've never been used before. I just think that in general, if somebody's very, very determined to actually kill people, they will find a way of doing it. And when people are together in a concert or in some sort of venue, if they're celebrating, that's an ideal time to do it for somebody with such murderous intentions. But what about the argument that goes that just why not have greater gun control? Because why give a greater easy access to a weapon that can do such harm to someone? I have seen that argument. In fact, it's captured in a tweet that I saw, which is, I love pizza. But if pizza was killing many, many different people, 
I would happily have it banned. And you know, you know, you have that sentiment that that um, if what are these guns for? There's, you know, they're they're at most they're not useful things. They have no particular use outside of of um, killing people, particularly um, the the so-called assault weapons, because that's what they're sort of designed to do. They're designed to look like military weapons, but in actual fact, uh, first of all, they're not military weapons. They are rifles. They're simply like a deer rifle with a go faster stripe on them. There's no real difference between a assault weapon, so-called assault weapon, these sort of military butch looking weapons and an ordinary rifle that somebody uses. And the key thing is that whatever people use them for, I I don't find them, you know, I, I wouldn't particularly feel the need to buy one, but the vast, vast, you know, tens of millions of Americans have these things and they commit very, very few crimes. Rifles are used in ridiculously low numbers of crimes, particularly homicides. They're used for fewer homicides than, for instance, shotguns. So you'd be banning, you'd be taking away tens of millions of things on the basis of one of these events and, and our emotional response to it. It just, it, it's not a rational response. Second thing is it, it's, it's very, very difficult to do. There are mental, you know, all sorts of proposals put forward about mental health and about uh, other things. So guns in themselves do not turn people into killers. Guns, the fact that somebody owns, for instance, 42 weapons or whatever this guy did, does not actually imply that somebody's a killer. It's when somebody has murderous intentions and a gun is a useful tool. But we should get it into, into some sort of perspective. It is simply a useful tool. You could say, for instance, that horses or dogs are not particularly useful. And why should people have them? Dogs hospitalize thousands, even in, in Britain and uh, many more in the United States. Horses are, are you know, have killed uh, at least 36 people over the last five years. And they're pretty useless to people who don't like horses. But I wouldn't tell somebody that they couldn't have these kind of hobbies simply because of my own uh, dislike of them and, and, and fear of them. And you mentioned earlier that the problem with focusing on guns and the problem with uh, obsessing over the instrument of the means with which uh, Stephen Paddock killed all these people, you you kind of avoid looking at the reason why, the reasons why there are um, mass shootings. Well, I think, that, yes, I think there is something to that. The, the difficulty is, of course, we'll never know exactly what Stephen Paddock what went through his mind, what made him do this sort of things. Perhaps they can put together some sort of a question uh, or some sort of a, a picture of what was actually he was thinking of at the time. And they may know a little bit more after they interview his partner, who they've now got in custody. However, I don't think you're ever going to be able to find the motivation of one of these massacres. It's, it's a bit difficult. So, uh, you know, I'm a little bit uneasy with this idea that we can sort of determine what goes through a maniac's mind before they kill all these various different people. But I do think you're right in, in the sense that people feel this need to do something. But people who do want to do something, I suppose, think that targeting butch-looking weapons like these things might actually have an effect. And of course, th that case is irrational and will have no effect if it, if it actually goes in. And it's simply an emotional response to an event. And I think we have to draw back from emotional responses to events and not pass 
laws on the back of, of various different events that that affect us emotionally but don't um, aren't in the in the large picture uh, going to have a massive effect it's worth remembering that the vast majority of deaths in the United States by gun are by pistols and of course pistols would not have done this guy any good whatsoever he couldn't have killed that many people so it, it's very very rare events like this I, I emphasize the rareness of these events because they really don't happen very often and the 8,200 people that are killed in, by pistols each year, there is a case for gun control that's entirely separate. But this is, I object to this idea that you, there's a, a, one of these attacks and suddenly we all jump on and say, we need to ban these weapons. Well, then finally then, Kevin, there's been conversation about whether, you know, prayers are not enough or action needs to take place. And people have been doing heroic things. You see people queuing outside waiting to give blood uh, in Las Vegas, just people who live in the area. What should Americans be doing rather than panicking about um, calling for gun control? What should Americans be doing uh, to respond to an attack like this? They can give blood. I think giving blood is a, is a great thing. And if I were close, I would like to think I would I would be in those queues to give blood as well. The other thing I think is to carry on as normal. I don't think that there's anything to be gained by going in for huge amounts of, of security in these situations. I don't think you can ever properly stop somebody. And I think there's an, an element where we have to say, look, rationally, the chances of this happening are very, very low. And we don't want to have, as the country Western singer Lee Bryce said, that shouldn't change just because one person who wants to take away all of this enjoyment from so many people, we shouldn't be cowing to that sort of threat. And we should be carrying on as normal in the same way that they tell us to do that after um, various attacks in this country. I think that's important. That was Kevin Yule on gun control after Las Vegas. Now for our final topic. The government has previously released a hate crime action plan in which it promised further guidance for schools on how to deal with hate crime. We are also expecting an audit into racial disparities in public services to be published next week. Now, this is all following the post-Brexit panic about hate crimes in schools, with wild media reports boasting stats showing how supposedly our kids have turned into little racists. But what's the truth behind all of this? As we know, percentages can lie, and Adrian Hart, author of That's Racist, How the Regulation of Speech and Thought Divides Us All, has been looking into the numbers. To tell me what he found out, and to give us the truth behind the fear-mongering about hate crime, I gave Adrian a call. So, Adrian, you've done some looking into the stats behind claims that hate crime is rising in schools. But before we get into that, could you tell us what the government is saying about this? Because there have been reports and there is an audit coming out soon. We don't really know what's in the audit till next week. So we're just left guessing about that. But what was more, what's more obvious at the moment is the hate crime action plan that, that came out in July. And that is funding and proposing a whole raft of fresh interventions into schools and specifically new guidance on how to report hate crime so we can expect that to contribute to uh, even higher numbers of supposed race and religious hate crime figures but as it stands um, we're looking at stats that are themselves incredibly small i mean the figures are really tiny okay and so you found out that actually this isn't the case that the hype around hate crime isn't backed up by facts these are stats that no one has really questioned the veracity of because once i 
did my own freedom of information survey of the findings that the uh, media made, the percentages, the percentage increases that were being reported quickly boiled down to tiny, tiny numbers. You know, we're talking about 935 supposed race or religious hate crimes from English schools covering uh, the last academic year. And so if they wanted to, they could have generated far, far more. If the police, if the uh, if anti-racism campaigners in schools really get stuck in, there will be limitless numbers of uh, supposed hate crimes to be gathered in from schools. The whirling, swirling world of children in playgrounds uh, potentially produces as many as you can be bothered to write down. Society-wide, the stats that uh, we look at that um, are driving this along is that, you know, the taken for granted uh, assumption that they should seem worrying to us are strange, really, because they're, they're surreal, because they, what they really fl- reflect is a rising trend in reporting and recording. And this is due to the widened definition of what race or religious hate crime is. Combined with that, it's due to the determination of government and police to tackle what it and campaigners considered to be underreported hate crime incident. And in your piece for Spiked this week, you mentioned Brexit and there was a huge amount of fear mongering about hate crime after the referendum. Do you think that that is feeding the desire to produce reports and audits on this? Yeah, uh, you know, the, the way that in which we are persuaded to think in this conspiratorial way and in this slightly paranoid way that racism uh, hides away and it it lurks in all the nooks and crannies of everyday life if only we could prize it out and flush it out and of course the referendum moment triggered a kind of heightened sense of that idea I saw it on Facebook and and reported on it at the time that these kind of um almost folklore-like kind of rumours, you know, that were generating uh, on social media about... There were, in South London, there was a, allegedly a sort of kristallnacht of window smashing and attacks on starting on uh, Turkish and Spanish uh, restaurants. And all of it was a fiction. It wasn't true. It just wasn't true. I rang up Lewisham Nick and talked to the hate crime coordinator there at the time and wrote about it soon after. And in schools, similarly, I've, I've now got the uh, figures in front of me and you can see that around the country, there was either no spike at all in the playground. So this is the paranoia. You think that the, uh, the children of the, of the masses, especially those untutored leave voting masses, will have surely demonstrated their xenophobia and their racism. Well, it's hardly there to be discerned. It really across, you know, I live in a really, really populated region and there was absolutely zero difference in so-called hate crimes reported to police from, from a location of a school or around a school between 2016 and the previous year, 2015, nothing, no changes at all. So I think that it's a nonsense on that level. And it's also a nonsense on the level of imagining that just because kids pick up little uh, insulting one-liners, that it has to be the harbinger of something 
dark and menacing. And I think that is, I think that at no stage uh, in the time that I've been studying these matters, uh, have I seen anything more pronounced than the last year of this sort of, uh, this paranoia, this, this sense in which the antennae for anything that is a signifier, a sign of racism becomes cranked up to full. And that has clearly happened. And I think that it probably in as much as there were, <laughs> there was a tiny spike of about 300 across the entire English schools network supposed hate crimes reported from schools to police, it will be because of that heightened state of kind of vigil, of, of listening out, looking out and writing things down. Well, finally, then, what's the solution? Are teachers buying into this? Are kids buying to this? And if it isn't true, what should we do to get real about the panic about hate crime? There is some good news here, because first, on kids in schools... As troubling as the growing interference of anti-racism in schools is, it is important, I think, to emphasize that kids today are more at ease with ethnic difference than ever before. They're more ethnically mixed. They're doing, in a way, you could say they're doing anti-racism all by themselves, you know, the right kind of anti-racism. They're simply inventing every day a model of interaction that is impressive. It really is, especially for me, having worked in so many schools over a decade, that was always the thing that stood out so powerfully. And then along came the anti-racism trainers to pull the kids into workshops and it interrupted and interfered with the process that kids were doing all by themselves. So there might be a very shouty, influential minority, I suppose, evident when these kids reach for example, campus level. But this layer, I think, are outnumbered and soon to be very, very outnumbered. There's other good news. Today, it's, the, it's precisely the rarity of racist violence and, we should add, outright racist beliefs that make occasional instances so shocking. It's the rarity of it. You know, you could say that there is no iceberg constant talk of the signs of racism being the tip of the iceberg. There is no iceberg. And yet the shock value, the belief that racism hides away, means the hunt is on. And so I think at the root of all this is a very familiar, top-down loss of faith in humanity, in the public. You know, we're all imagined as a rotten lot, always on the cusp of something bad and only held back by policy interventions. And so Schools become front lines in this concern to protect us from the consequences of ourselves outside the school gate. We're all becoming imagined as hapless, helpless children. So I say I think we should fight to abolish hate crime laws altogether. You know, we are freer at this point in the early 21st century from from hate than at any time. But instead, you know, we're, be we're, we're becoming choked by hypersensitivity and an obsession, uh, I think, with identity politics. You've been listening to the Spiked Podcast. To get your daily dose of Spiked Opinion, head to spiked-online.com, subscribe to our podcast feed, and if you'd like to help Spike continue to thrive, be sure to make a donation. Thanks for listening.